Hey there, Pastor Mark here. It's our prayer that this message would encourage and equip you in your relationship with Jesus. We're able to provide this content due to the joyful generosity of our financial partners. And if you'd be willing to join that tribe and help get some sermons like this around the world, you can donate at harvestbaptist.info slash give. God bless. Well, if you would take your Bibles and go to Luke chapter number six. As you turn there, I want to highlight in your missions a bulletin. Now, I'm not going to read it to you. There's a lot that you can read today. Uh, but there are two goals for Missions Month, at least two big goals for us. Uh, many of you have been around the church for a long time. You know what Missions Month is all about for us. Some of you are new, so we're going to emphasize different aspects of our mission department or program uh, every single week this month, but it kind of culminates at the end of the month for us saying, hey, what do we want to give to missions this year? Uh, our goal this year is to give away $300,000 in the next 12 months, money that will not turn the lights on, money that will not buy a chair for this room, money that will go exclusively to John Honeycutts of the world and Josue Ortiz's of the world and projects all over the world. So, uh, we would love for you to consider giving. You have a month to think about it and to pray about it. Uh, there's even a little card inside of your bulletin that looks something like this here. And this is anonymous, but at the end of Missions Month, we'll collect these. It's an intent to give card. Uh, it's not necessarily a locked and loaded guaranteed promise, but it is over the next 12 months, man, I would like to give to the missions program X amount. And you can fill in whatever God is leading you to do. That's between you and the Lord. But we do hope that you'll start to pray about this and that you will participate uh, in some level. Maybe it's five bucks a month. Maybe it's $5,000 a month. I don't know, but uh, you can take this and pray about it. We also have a general goal. So goal one is a missions goal. $300,000 is what we'd like to, to do this year. And goal two is a, just a participation goal. And that is to contribute in any way, shape, or form throughout the course of the month. Uh, we actually, in August, set a record for our church that in one month's time, we had the most contributors in a month than we've ever had before. It was a little shy of 350 unique contributors. So understand a contributor, it may be a widow who's giving herself, or that may be a family unit where mom and dad and the kids, they kind of all give in one funnel, and that family unit is one. Uh, but we would like to break our, our record this month. I think that's a worthy goal, and in some ways may even be a more important goal because it communicates we would like all hands on deck. Whether your hand is on the deck in a small way or a large way, I don't know that that matters so much. Uh, I, but I do think it matters that everyone is contributing in some way, shape, or form. So I would encourage you this month, uh, some of you are like, look, I text to give all the time. I'm giving online. I'm, I'm writing a check. Great, keep it up. But if you're someone that's like, eh, you know, that's hit or miss, and, and it kind of it comes and it goes, or maybe one month I do, one month I don't, let's all contribute this month and, uh, and see if we can't break our, our old record. So uh, th those are the goals for Missions Month, and I'm looking forward to the journey ahead and, and what lays uh, in store for us uh, here over the course of October. Well, I want to start this morning by telling you a little bit about myself. Most of you would know this, but I have always liked to read. 
Uh, ever since I've been itty bitty, I can remember liking reading as the reading circle, like in elementary school. Uh, I started uh, getting in book clubs, like when I was second grade, third grade, fourth grade. Uh, my mom is an avid reader, and she would go to the library often and would load up her books for like the next two weeks and, and would read. And I loved going to the library with, with my mother and getting books and looking through them. I can remember as a fourth and fifth and sixth grader, I was not interested in like the new video game release date and it was coming out this day and we got to go and wait in line and buy it. I was more interested in like the book release date. I was a huge, I don't know if I'm ashamed to say it now or not, but I've, I'll say it nevertheless. I was a huge R.L. Stein fan who wrote Goosebumps, which don't judge me or my parents, okay? They're a little creepy and a little spooky and the irony is I don't even like scary stuff. Uh, I, horror movies, any of that stuff, I'm out. But I loved Goosebumps, and, and I read them much to the chagrin of some of my Christian school teachers who told me there were devils in the pages and stuff. But uh, I read them, and it was, I would remember, like, this Goosebumps book is going to come out, like, on this Tuesday, and I better go get in line for it, you know? Or not, there wasn't a line, but I better go to Walgreens, and I know where they're at. I, I may go find one. I love to read. Even in our family right now, we enjoy reading. Um, my wife and I will oftentimes talk, talk about the books that we're reading. Uh, we will, if we go on a trip, we have a habit twice a year. We try to break away without our kids uh, for at least a night. Most of the time we can get two nights away, just us without the kids. And uh, our, our next trip actually is next week, uh, right after this service. I'll preach and we'll hang out and we'll do church. And then in the afternoon we are escaping for 48 hours uh, without kids and, and looking forward to it immensely. But we oftentimes will have like, to us a good novel is a good time. Right? We will find a novel as an audiobook, and I understand this isn't everybody's cup of tea, but it's ours. And we'll share some AirPods, we'll put one in my ear and one in her ear, and we'll turn it on, and we will just listen to that book, and we will enjoy the fire out of it. It's just kind of how we're wired, it's how I'm wired. I mention that because the most recent book I read, I finished it this week, or I should say I listened to it this week in audio, was Tribe by Sebastian Younger. And it was interesting, he makes a, a number of points that I think are, are really relevant to today's world and even to the church, but he, he chronicles what was happening in the early 1700s in colonial America, which I found fascinating, that Younger says there are all these examples of colonists along the eastern seaboard leaving these metropolitan cities that were popping up in New York and in Boston and all these places, and they were going to move in and live with permanently the indigenous people groups of the East Coast. And it was a one-way street, this traffic was, that we don't really have examples of uh, in indigenous peoples wanting to come live with the colonists of their own free will and volition, but colonists wanting to go live with them. There's even multiple examples of women and children, men, who were kidnapped for some sort of war purpose, but they were welcomed with hospitality when they were in the tribe. And after they were rescued and ransomed, they went to great lengths to escape the colonies and go back and live with their captors. Uh, Benjamin Franklin actually was a bit incredulous about this. He wrote to his friend at one point in time, and he said, these are Franklin's words, though ransomed by their friends and treated with all imaginable tenderness, to prevail with them, to stay among the English, 
Yet in a short time, they became disgusted with their manner of life, and they took the first good opportunity of escaping again into the woods. And Younger looks and says, why is this that these people are like going to escape and live there? And there's a bit of speculation and a lot of theories. But part of his theory is that these people found in the tribes both a sense of solitude and community that they could not find in the metropolitan cities. That there wasn't the hustle and bustle of life that was in the city, but there was a simpler, slower pace of life and more solitude. And there also was this sort of camaraderie in the tribe that modern life was not affording these people. And the combination of solitude and community together was somehow magnetic to many of these early settlers. And I'm not personally surprised by that because as we have been examining the practices of Jesus, and let me just back up a step, the series that we're in right now is all about Jesus wants followers, Jesus wants apprentices. And there's a way to start that journey. You gotta put your faith and your trust in Jesus. I love that the choir sang the gospel message this morning that Jesus dies on the cross for our sins and he sheds his blood. He raises from the dead and he offers salvation to anyone who will put their faith in him. He is the way, the truth, and the life. But there's a path of discipleship that's meant to take place over the course of time that we're meant to be with Jesus and like Jesus and we become like Jesus when we take in his truth and we begin to practice his practices. And we're looking at the kind of dual practices of solitude and community. These both would fit neatly into the buckets that all the practices fit in. There's a bucket of abstinence, these different practices where you abstain from something. Maybe you would fast or you would get into solitude or silence even that you get away from things. There's also practices of engagement where you would begin to go and to serve and to worship corporately, and you have solitude and community as these practices of abstinence and engagement that are meant to be great dance partners and live with each other. And we looked at solitude last week, and this week we get to examine this idea of community. And I want to start with just a very simple statement that I think think all of you would agree with, but maybe haven't thought about too profoundly lately. And that is that Jesus lived in community. If we're looking to be like Jesus, it doesn't take you very long to figure out he wasn't a hermit. He was not a gray bearded sage on top of a mountain yelling down commands to people. He was someone who had a tribe, who had a community, who had a church, who had a group of of people that he lived with, did life with, literally day to day, traveled together 24-7. You would find the uh, formal formation of this community in Luke chapter number six, which is where I invite you to read with me. It says that it came to pass in those days that Jesus went into a mountain to pray and continued all night in prayer to God. So here you have the discipline of solitude, the discipline or practice of prayer, also the discipline or practice of fasting. He is fasting from sleep. He is doing what is known as the watch. He is forgoing sleep in order to commune with his heavenly father. And many have speculated that this is because he has some big decisions to make and he wants to be in tune with with God. I shouldn't say fully because he was always fully in tune with God, but he wants to spend time with God in a way that he couldn't do in the hustle and bustle. And so now he makes the decision, verse 13, when it was day, 
He called unto him his disciples, and he chose of them twelve, whom he also named apostles. So, disciples, plural, apostles, plural, right? Not singular, not a BFF that he could spend all of his days with. He wants a group, a community, and it goes on to list all of the names of, of Simon and Bartholomew, and I won't read all the names to you. It's an interesting cast of characters. And what you find is that Jesus does life with these people. He runs errands with them. He does teaching with them. They eat together. They are uh, sleeping in the same houses. They are, they are together all of the time. And I could give you a hundred examples of this from the gospel. But I just want to give you one to showcase a little bit of Jesus living in community, sharing with other people, uh, practicing spiritual disciplines together. Mark 14 would be a great example if you want to turn over there. This is the night before Jesus is crucified. They've just had dinner. Judas has slipped out to betray Jesus. Jesus knows what is coming. And he begins to be very heavy, filled with sorrow. And he wants to do something with his friends, with his community. Here's what he does, verse 32. They came to a place which was named Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit ye here while I shall pray. And he taketh with him Peter and James and John and began to be sore amazed and began to be very heavy. And he said unto them, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even unto death. So tarry you here, watch. And he went forward a little, fell on the ground and prayed. And here's his prayer. If it were possible that the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible unto thee. Take away this cup from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but thou wilt. In this very famous episode, this very famous phraseology of not my will, but thine be done, Lord. But if you're not careful, you will just glance over the community that is happening here, right? Jesus would spend time all by himself in solitude, but this is one where he says, guys, come with me. You stay here. It says he went a little ways. I'm, I'm going to go over here, just a stone's throw. You can see me. You can watch me. You know that I'm praying. They probably could even hear mumbling or, or some of what he was saying, but not be a fly on the wall. And we're going to do this together. I want you to pray while I pray. And notice how he shares with them, right? His soul is heavy. And what does Jesus do? Stuff it all down inside and never let anyone know, never show his cards. Keep a stiff upper lip. And never invite anyone into what he's feeling? No, he shares. His soul is exceedingly sorrowful, so he tells them, guys, I'm struggling here. I'm like, I'm, I'm going through it right now. I need some help. I want some company. I want you to be with me. I want you to pray with me. Now, this is one of a thousand examples in Jesus' life of him practicing community. And you find that Jesus oscillates very swiftly and very smoothly between solitude and community, being with the people and engaged, but then being alone with his heavenly father. And back and forth he goes, his whole ministry experience. And the basic premise is, if these were some of the foundational practices of Jesus, these need to be some of our foundational practices. That we should be okay with shutting down the email, turning off the phone, getting by ourselves, even muting all the noise, being silent, and spending some time with our Heavenly Father, even though it is hard for us to do this and we have to work to be in solitude, we shouldn't be scared of solitude. That was last week. It was the introvert's, like, favorite sermon. But there is the other side of that coin, which is the extrovert's favorite sermon, 
that you also have to engage in community. You can't just be in solitude by yourself. And I want to help you understand a couple things about community with the limited time that I have this morning. First would be that community is very different than connectivity. So we are all pretty connected. Most of you have a smartphone in your, in your purse or in your pocket. It's easy for us to have the FaceTime and the text messages and the emails and follow people on social media and the notifications that are ding, 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 ding all the time. It's easy for us to be connected, but it's very easy for us in our connectivity to miss out on both solitude and community. And I love you enough to tell you that you need both of these. Like, I'm not sure why it is that there's some people that don't necessarily welcome the community that is the church fully into their life. But I've been pastoring long enough to know that there are many, including some of you that are sitting here right now, that would say, I love Jesus. He's my savior. I've, I wanna read my Bible. I wanna talk to him. I'll even come to church. But I do not fully want to engage in the church or in community or in forming relationships with other believers. And I don't know why that is. That could be because you're introverted. That could be because your paradigm is a little off kilter in relation to what you should do biblically. It could be that there's some church hurt in your background. And well, they said this and they did that. And I did go all in. My previous church, I gave it everything that I had and I was there and I showed up and I was faithful and I gave. And then they pulled the rug out from under me when that pastor did or whatever it is. And I'm not belittling that. But I'll tell you this. While I may not know why you are hesitant or reticent to co commit to community, I do know it's to your detriment. I do know it will hurt you if you won't fully. This is what Dallas Willard said about this. He said, the good life that Jesus has on offer is one that requires some regular and profound conjunction with others who share it. It is greatly diminished, this good life, when that is lacking, if there's not a regular, rhythmic, consistent pattern that is somehow deep or profound with other believers, then your Christian life will be less than. Mark it down. Community is something that has been on the decline for 70 years in America. Uh, social studies tell us this over and over again. In church world, uh, church attendance has been slashed in half over the last 70 years. There are half as many people going to church now as were in 1950, but it's not just a church thing. Like the country clubs and the, the Elks Lodge and our, our nation has gone from a front porch community to close the garage door, back porch, put up the six foot fence world. Like that's where we live now. It's very different. I think one of the greatest examples of this is actually uh, out of a, a little book that someone wrote on some social studies, but raise of hands, how many of you were ever in a bowling league, bowling league participants? Let me see you. Where are my bowling league people at? Okay. Keep your hand up if you're still in a bowling league. All right, we got, we got one. Why, why is the country club membership down and the bowling leagues are going away and the church attendance is down? Like there's a pattern here, right? There's something happening culture-wide where we are more connected with technology than ever, but our community is so lacking. And most people are 
completely averse to the idea that I would somehow commit to another group of people that would somehow require me to, to deploy self-sacrifice or show up or put myself on the hook, some sort of commitment. Like people just don't want it. And you need to know that God never intended your spiritual life, while it should be personal, it should be private at times in solitude, but he never meant for it to be exclusively privatized, individualized, just me and Jesus, no community. He did not intend for that. You see this in the life that he lived. You also see this as he goes away. He raises from the dead. He leaves his spirit with his followers so that he would be gone, but lo, I would be with you always, even until the end of the world. But he doesn't stop there. He goes a, maybe a mile further, maybe more than a step. He goes further and says, let's establish a church. This place where my believers will assemble together and come together and they will continue in doctrine and in learning together and in fellowship together and in breaking of bread together and in praying together and my people will actually come together and do this and take their spiritual life and say, to some degree, this is a community project. This is meant to be lived out of in relationship with other people. And the irony of our current situation is that the majority of people who are American are alone, like you're by yourself relatively often in the car, in the shower, on a hike, whatever, but you're not really alone very often because the podcast is in or the TV show's on or something else is happening or you're, or you're scrolling through and following them. So you're alone, but not really alone. So alone without solitude, really. But then we're super connected with all these people in these surface level relationships. And we, at times, spend more time looking through and liking the photo of someone that we just met in passing at, I don't know, your friend's birthday party a year ago than we actually spend in time face to face with our true friends. And so we're like together, but not really together. And the sum total is that many people end up with this like knockoff bootleg version of solitude and community, and in turn, they get neither. Like we're without both of them. And the idea for God's people is that you need to be alone with him, communing with your Savior often, regularly, but you also need to be with other believers very regularly. I like the title of the book uh, by psychologist Sherry Turkle. She wrote Alone Together. And she tries to put her finger on this idea that we are with people all the time, but also alone. And here's what she says about people showing up in the workforce nowadays. And this just made me chuckle because I've experienced it so many times and even been guilty of it myself at times. She said, in today's workplace, young people who have grown up fearing conversation, and boy, that's a whole nother rant I'd love to get on. They show up on the job wearing earphones, and we're together, but each of us is in our own bubble, furiously connected to our keyboards and tiny little touchscreens. Like, here we are meant to be together, but in our own little world, not really together, not really connected. And could it be that the community that is the church is meant to combat what is happening in society-wide right now in some really healthy ways and to help us? And I would argue yes. There is a time and place 
to establish a rhythm of, you know what, I want to be with God's people. I want to engage. I don't, and I'm glad you're here in church, okay? So let me for a minute, give me this live stream angle right here. Uh, I'll talk to the people on camera. I'll ignore you because you're here, okay? Two thumbs up. You at home, you need this too, probably more than the people in the room, okay? But you need it too because I'm not dense. You can be together with all these people and be very alone and all by yourself on your own spiritual journey not connected in any ministry team, serving along other people in relationship, not in a group at church, not, you know, we dismiss and you go straight to your car and never have a conversation with anyone else. Handshaking time is your least favorite time. Wooden Indian, hands in pocket, leave me alone, I'm an introvert. Like it's very possible for you to do this, but still be very isolated. And that's not God's intention. You will in some ways short circuit your Christian life if you do that. And my goal this morning is to help at least, there's so much I'd like to say, but I have very limited time. I would like to just set an expectation or two. Because what can happen if you're not careful, those of you that are in community, you will resonate with this and you'll be like, yes, that's true. I've learned that the hard way. And those of you that aren't, you'll be like, okay, yeah, I need this. Uh, this is good medicine for me. I need to get involved. I need, I need to plug in. I need relationships. I need community. But then you'll be really like, your teeth will be set on edge if you're not careful because you don't have the proper expectations going into it. And what you need to know is first that we're not talking about connectivity. We're not talking about you following me on social media, which good luck, I never post anything anyway. It'd be a really lame follow. We're talking about actual relationships with people where you're sharing your life, where Jesus is with his disciples like, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful. I'm struggling. Would you help me? Like that sort of relationship. But you also need to know that you do not need chemistry to have community. And this is something that throws people off all the time. But there is a time and place for chemistry. If you're dating someone, I would mildly recommend chemistry. It'd probably be a good idea. But when you're talking about putting the church together or you're talking about even a smaller group of church members in like a, one of our groups that we have or serving on a ministry team, we're not talking about chemistry. Chemistry at the level of we both know Jesus and Jesus is our savior and we love him, sure. But oftentimes your chemistry is cattywampus. In Jesus's own little tribe, his band of merry men are the perfect example of this. Because if you read in Luke 6, who were his uh, guys... They were from all over. Like you have city slickers and you got backwoods guys. You have guys who are really interested in money and those who just want to fish and make a living. You have guys, so one of them is Simon the Zealot. A, a zealot was someone who was basically like an insurgent or engaged in guerrilla warfare against the Roman oppression. Zealots were wanting to wage war against other Roman soldiers that were around. So you have that guy alongside of Matthew, the tax collector, who had linked arms with the Roman government and had basically sold his soul to them. Like you're talking water and oil. You're talking about a hodgepodge, mishmash bunch of dudes who were put together in Jesus's community. Like there's guys who want to... Their idea of a good time is the city and a nice dinner and going to the symphony. And then you have another group of guys who their idea of a good time is mac and cheese and NASCAR, right? Like they're opposite. And you know what happens in this little tribe of 12 apostles? 
they step on each other's toes all the time. Like that lack of chemistry pops up over and over again if you actually read the Gospels looking for it. So I'll give you one example of this, which is really laughable and hilarious to me, but really encouraging because it it lets me know the realism that is trying to do life together with other followers of Jesus. Matthew chapter number 20, if you want to turn there, I would certainly invite you to. This is a story about uh, two of the 12, two brothers wanting to enact a little uh, (laughs) mission to get their way with Jesus. Verse number 20, then came to Jesus, the mother of Zebedee's children. So James's mom and John's mom, worshiping him and desiring a certain thing of him. The implication being she is buttering him up. She is worshiping him or bowing down to him in order to get what she wants. Jesus is in tune with this and very gracious. He does not lay into her, but he says to her, verse 21, what wilt thou? What do you want? Like, I know, yeah, I know you want something. Why are you here? Why are you worshiping me? What are you trying to get from me? She says unto him, grant that these my two sons may sit, one on their right hand and one on their left, in thy kingdom. So when you become president, Jesus, would you make one of my boys your vice president? And then would you make my other boy your secretary of state? That's what she's asking Jesus to do. And Jesus' response is, uh, there's a bit to untangle, but I'll hit it quickly. He answered and said, ye know not what ye ask. Are you able to drink of the cup that I shall drink of and be baptized with the baptism that I'm baptized with? And they said to him, we are able. This is talking about the the cup of suffering, his cup of suffering love that he would drink. And certainly he's going to tell them, ye indeed shall drink of my cup and be baptized with the baptized I'm baptized with, which we know they will. They'll eventually be martyred for him. But to sit on my right hand and on my left, which you just asked of me, that is not mine to give, but it shall be given to them for whom it's prepared of my father. And when the 10 heard it, they were moved with indignation against the two brethren. Stop. Okay, you can repass that and just keep moving and, and just look for Jesus' teaching, but that's important. These other 10 are not within earshot of James's, John's mommy going and pleading their case for them, but they hear about it. And when they find out that you sent your mom to do your bidding so that you could get a better position than us, they are, quote, moved with indignation. They are ticked. They are mad. They, they want to explode. They want to wring their neck, right? This is one of so many examples inside of this community of Jesus where the feathers are ruffled and the toes are stepped on and things are just less than relationally healthy, you might say. I mean, they're mad about this. And Jesus gets them together and he begins to teach them. He called on them and said, you know, the princes of the Gentiles, they exercise dominion over them. They, they that are great exercise authority upon them, but it shall not be so among you, right? Guys, we're not gonna do all this power play stuff in my community. That's not what I'm after, not here. But whosoever will be great among you, let him be your minister. Whosoever will be chief among you, let him be your servant. Even as the son of man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. Right, to live in my community is to live under the rule of God. And this means that we're going to have an example of loving sacrifice of which I will be supreme and I will give my life a ransom for many. There's so much in the teaching there that I would love to elaborate on. But here's the basic point. 
you put a hodgepodge group of people together that want to follow Jesus and have Jesus in common, but lack in chemistry in many ways, they oftentimes step on each other's toes. And they oftentimes make each other angry. And they do things that are insensitive, things that require forgiveness. There's real relationships happening. I love the realism of this text. Because what it tells me is that if that was Jesus's community, here today we sit still as Jesus's community, as the followers of Jesus comprised in one local body to make up a church, should we expect our community to look altogether different than that one? I would argue no. And I am not saying hall pass for everyone that says dumb stuff and steps on people's toes and is rude and is unkind and, and, you know, does shady stuff. I'm not saying hall pass for that. I'm just saying we should expect it sometimes. That's all I'm saying. You know why? Because you're a work in progress and you're a work in progress and you're a work in progress and I'm a work in progress. And if we're all a work in progress, we ain't arrived yet. We got some work to do, right? And I, w- I would not only argue that we should expect this, I would argue that if you expect it and can reframe it in the proper way, that it will be to your benefit. My favorite illustration that I've ever heard on church, and I do not recall who I heard it from, so I wish I could give them credit, but I know that I did years ago, was that of a rock tumbler. I brought a rock tumbler with me this morning. I ordered it off of Amazon this week, and if any of your kids are into rocks, let me know. I'll give it to them because I only need it for this one illustration, and I have no intention to keep it. But this is a, it's a little container. Uh, This screws off and screws on, but I just left it on. You put some water in here, and you drop inside of this container gemstones, rocks. So these are some of the raw gemstones that you would put in there. Don't ask me what the names of them are, but they're pretty. That one's like a Dalmatian-looking thing. This one's a little red. It's a little dirty, real jagged edges right there. You could cut somebody with that. There's, there's all these gemstones that you, get to, that you get to put in there. And you lock them inside of this container together, put a little bit of water in, and you put them on this lathe. And there's options here. There's one day, two days, three days, all the way up to seven days. And you hit the start button, and it rolls. And they will, in this little container, they will roll and roll. And what those rocks will do is they will crash and crash, and they'll, they'll rub. And th- all they'll do is collide into each other over and over and over and over again. But it's in that collision that their rough edges are knocked down. It's in that collision that they begin to become smoother. They begin to shine. I actually brought with me, these were two. I put, in the, I put them in there for about a day. They were real dirty and nasty. And it was amazing. After about a day inside of this thing, there's still some rough edges, but way, way less rough. It's still a little bit dingy. There's not exactly the luster that you would want out of a gemstone, but it's on its way. And if you leave them in there long enough, more than a day, you'll end up having things. They're whittled down. They're smaller, but they'll start to look like those little gemstones that you can find at the little mining place at Ohio Pile or, you know, kids at a little store. You can find some of these on vacation. You'll start to get the tiger's eye and the amethyst, and you will get these smooth, polished, shining rocks, right? And this 
This is the church. You, with all of your rough edges and all of your sin and all of your mess, gets put in a church with another person who has rough edges and sin and some mess in their life and some things they're not proud of. And some other person who feels ashamed about that and their rough edges, and you get put in here, and guess what starts to happen? You start to bounce up against each other. But it's exactly that process, that imperfect, that messy middle ground of life that you actually begin to grow. Because here's what happens. You can... You can say, bunch of hypocrites, these people say they know Jesus, and they would act like that. I'm out! You can do that. Or you can say, man, they said that, and it really offended my sensibilities, and I am struggling to forgive them. What's going on in here? Why am I struggling to forgive as as the Father, for Christ's sake, forgave me? And all of a sudden, their imperfection reveals one in you, and a little rough edge gets knocked off of you. And they can go do that thing that is wrong. It's, it's not okay. Anyone would tell you that was shady, that, that, that was not the right thing to do. But then you realize, I don't want to be around them anymore. I don't want to shake their hand. Don't sit in my section. Don't come to my service. I'm going to the 9 o'clock service. I'm putting my flag down, sticking the 1030, soon to be 1045. Get out of here. You can do that. Or you can look in and say, I'm struggling to love them even when they're unlovely. That's kind of at the heart of the gospel that Jesus would love me when I was unlovely and would want to save me from my sin. What's going on in here? And if you can look at it that way, a rough edge gets knocked off. And you start to shine a little bit more. And it's, the point is this. As imperfect as a bunch of Christians are who get together in a church. It's that imperfection that oftentimes shapes us to look more like Jesus. Because how are you ever going to learn to forgive if someone doesn't do anything bad to you? How are you ever going to learn to put up with them or to forbear one another, as the Bible would say, if they're not annoying And I'm not saying go deploy your annoyance as a spiritual gift. So don't get me wrong. Don't hear what I'm not saying. But let's be real. That happens. They are uncouth. They are annoying. They are whatever. And don't hang a banner up and slander them, but choose to say, how can this make me look more like Jesus? Don't jump out of the bucket and run from it. But embrace it and know this is meant to make me more like Jesus. This is what, I'll close with a quote. This is from Bonhoeffer in his book, Life Together, which I've mentioned several times at this point. He talks about real community. And his words are so profound. He said, every human wish dream that is injected into the Christian community is a hindrance to genuine community. And it must be banished if genuine community is to survive. He who loves his dream of community or his ideal of what the community should be more than the Christian community itself becomes a destroyer of the latter, even though his personal intentions may be ever so honest and earnest and sacrificial. The sooner this shock of disillusionment comes to an individual and to a community, the better for both. Now, I want to highlight that last phrase. 
the sooner you are shot by how disillusioned you are with them, the better off it is for you. If you've been married at any length of time, you know exactly what he's saying, right? Because you were, if you had a relatively normal dating relationship that was pretty static and not a lot of fighting, then you went into marriage Twitter-pated. Like you went into marriage thinking they hung the moon and, and we're gonna be the exception to the rule and you know, we're not gonna fight and, and they're, they're just the best all the time. And then a shock of disillusionment happened. And you realized, oh, they're pretty imperfect. <laughs> and they just hurt me. And they said that and they did that. But when you realize that that's going to happen, the better off you are because you can, you can push through it and know to expect it. That's what Bonhoeffer saying about the church. He's not saying run from community because there are some bad eggs. He's saying we're all bad eggs. Let's embrace it and let's do this together. So here's the point. Enjoy, practice, and embrace solitude, but enjoy, practice, and embrace community. I put a few suggestions for you on your bulletin this morning. I'm not going to read them all to you, but things as simple as don't run straight to your car when the service is over. Go talk to somebody. I guess it's five minutes, but five minutes every single week can actually help you build some relationships. And that's, that's very beginner level, but some of you would maybe need to start there. Jump on a team, jump into a group. There's ways to do that inside of your bulletin. Ways for you to begin to deploy this and say, you know, I need to hone in on this. I need to do better. Let's be people that follow Jesus, both in our solitude and in our community. Let's pray. Father, we love you and we thank you for our time together this morning. My prayer is that we would look more like you, not just because we came to church today and heard a sermon, but because we actually want to work out our Christianity. We want to give it effort. We want to practice things. We want to put our efforts in the right places. So Jesus, my prayer is that you would help us, you would guide us. Would you give wisdom to these people that are here? We cannot get great at every single practice all in the span of a week. So would you give wisdom to those that are here to know where they really should put their energy? Whether that is in solitude, whether that is in community, or whether that is in a practice in the weeks to come. But I pray that every single one of us, without exception, would grow. That we would be shaped and formed to look more like you. This is our prayer. And Jesus, it's in your name that we pray. I want to invite you just to remain in a spirit of prayer this morning. If you know Jesus, I think Dave had a great thought after the choir special. Thank him. Be reminded of his love for you. Commit to him that I want to follow in your footsteps. I want to do life as you would have me do it. I want to be more like you. Tell him that. If you don't know Jesus, then we would invite you to make him your personal Lord and Savior today, to put your faith and your trust in him today. He died for your sins. He was buried and he rose again. And if you will put your faith in him and in him alone, he will save you from your sins. He will forgive those sins. He will give you a home in heaven. 
If you've never done that, but you'd like to, maybe just pray something like this. Just say, Jesus, today I put my faith and trust in you. Not in myself, not in other gods, but in you and in you alone. I am making you Lord of my life and I believe you died for my sins. It doesn't have to be those words, but if you will pray something like that, Jesus promises you that he'll save you from your sins.